Target on, and we're in day four of learning 2.0. This has really been fun, and this is uh, this is a moment I've been looking forward to. Uh, Young Zhao is here to talk about his newest book, World Class Learners. Welcome, Young. Thanks, Steve. If you if this is your first time in Blackboard Collaborate, we do recommend that you pull the chat out so that you're able to see it. Double click on the top of the chat box and drag it out, or look for the menu uh, drop down on the right hand side and detach the panel. That's often the easiest way. You then you can enlarge that chat. Also, if you're here for the first time, go into Edit Preferences and you can upload a photo in your profile. You'll notice that uh, many of the people in the room little images next to their names, and that's because there's a profile photo in there. It's fun for people to be able to hover over and learn more about you. Yong, while you are getting your coffee, you missed some glowing praise in the chat. Uh, one person said that they're a changed educator since having seen you at the ISPE conference. Uh, high praise, I think. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Thanks for the compliment. Thanks to the sponsors and supporters of the Learning 2.0 conference. We appreciate uh, that help. And I'm now going to turn the time over to Yong. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, everybody, uh, for participating. And uh, uh, as uh, I was saying, Steve, I probably won't be using slides. Uh, I think this is more like a, a conversation rather than a, a keynote presentation. And at any time, if anyone has questions, and they can just type in the chat. I'm sure Steve will be uh, moderating uh, for this. So uh, they, um, and I will try to answer as many questions as possible. Uh, I will try to speak for about really uh, 45 minutes, uh, mainly focus on the idea of uh, came from my new book uh, that they uh, just came out by Corwin Press. And uh, so let me start by making rain about uh, three statements, and uh, it's something I was writing right now anyway. So uh, for those of you, if you get a three sentences, uh, that's the message of the session. If uh, you want to go. Get caught and you won't be missing anything. It's a very quick summary. Uh, I think number one statement is that uh, uh, basically, I think uh, look at the economy now. We need to create a new uh, middle class. American or many other developed countries uh, need to create a new middle class. The new middle class are not going to be from the manufacturing sector, but from the creative and entrepreneurial sector. That is, we need everyone to be. Uh, creative and entrepreneurial and globally competent. Uh, that's the first message uh, of the book and also of the session. The second thing is that, however, our schools have been traditionally following the paradigm that's uh, preparing employees or job seekers and job finders, and uh, that's not going to do very well. And on top of that, what's even worse is our current education reform uh, efforts in the U.S. Uh, and in other Anglo countries like uh, in the UK, Australia, and even New Zealand are trying to fix the old paradigm by standardization, standardized curriculum, and by standardized uh, testing, by all those uh, centralization efforts. And it's actually making the uh, old paradigm uh, worse by trying to fix it. And the third uh, uh, message is what I think we need to do. We need then the first thing to do is to what I would call make a big U-turn to stop uh, further centralizing and fixing the old paradigm uh, while ruining or destroying our traditional strength uh, that's embedded in some of their educational systems. And based on that, to rebuild the new paradigm based on the strength of uh, American education and other decentralized systems. So that's a, a very simple uh, three things of a message. So let me take on the first point. Uh, um, quickly, why do we need everyone to be entrepreneurial and uh, creative? Uh, since the book was out, I have had uh, uh, quite a number of inquiries regarding why I use entrepreneurial as if I'm making uh, the, the education a business, an enterprise, uh, or trying to produce students only for economical uh, success, to be making money, to be, uh, well, you know, of course, there are really some uh, uh, bad you know, entrepreneurial activities from big uh, corporations to uh, people like Bernie Madoff on Wall Street and all those things have ruined our life, uh, many of our lives at least. And uh, why am I using this term? I think let me actually start by saying that uh, 
our society, the, the economical history, economical prosperity has always been driven by creative, uh, disruptive entrepreneurs. And uh, the, but for a long time, our society uh, needed only a few of them. You know, it's uh, every uh, few decades or every few, you know, even centuries. You know, in the olden times, if you get a few uh, of them. Uh, would be good, you know, like think about uh, James Watt, the steam engine inventors and his partners. And uh, uh, when they invent something, when they create a big enterprise, they drive certain changes and they can employ a lot of people. Then they create jobs for other people. Like uh, uh, think about Henry Ford is the same example, even uh, to the extent of the, digital, the computer industry. It's, uh, and uh, once they, they uh, come up with idea, with a product, with a set of uh, of things, then they created opportunities uh, for jobs for other people. Uh, however, uh, in recent, you know, a lot of those uh, uh, innovations do not necessarily drive the same kind of job creation as before. And uh, this is uh, some uh, economists according to the hollowing out effect of America, for example. I mean, if you look at uh, Facebook, which was uh, now, of course, it's not doing very well stock-wise, uh, and so don't don't uh, don't uh, dwell on that point. Uh, the point is to say that uh, uh, Facebook uh, has created a value at this on the day of uh, the, uh, the IPO was uh, about $30 billion, I think. That's a lot of money, but Facebook employed less than 10,000 people. They don't need factories. Uh, they, they, they do not need a lot of factories. So, so does Twitter. And if you look at Silicon Valley, a lot of uh, companies, when they create, they were less, it's a knowledge economy. And uh, so what basically means that in the U.S., I think we have been, um, at least the political candidates have been lamenting on the, on the fact that uh, the middle class uh, has uh, been disappearing in the U.S. And uh, the income of the top 10%, the inventors, uh, have been growing. And uh, the bottom part, actually, the look at the labor force, is probably going to grow as well because uh, Zuckerberg and all those other inventors, they still need services and need to be able to uh, fix the plumbing to uh, also to mop the floor of the restaurants they go to. So that's basically we're looking at the the growth uh, on two ends: the polarization of lower end and the high end, uh, the the innovation piece, and the, the middle part, the making the high skill, you know, highly skilled manufacturer jobs. A lot of those things are uh, if they are routinized procedural jobs, as you many of you are very aware of, uh, have been. Uh, gun. It's a gun meaning in, in the sense that uh, uh, number one, it's been outsourced and think about um, since uh, offshore to other countries. And the second thing it's been replaced by machines is automation. And, and Daniel Pink with a term called Asia and automation, the two A's. And that's, uh, that's, that's a big change. It's, uh, the, the productivity of uh, uh, workers has uh, just risen because of uh, outsourcing because of uh, uh, offshoring. So that's the middle part. I, I know uh, there's a lot of desire to bring back the manufacturers, and some of them may be able to be brought back, and some may be able to grow because of, uh, for special reasons, for specialty, special talents, and for uh, location to raw materials, uh, always or all maybe just because of uh, political protection. But in general, on, on a massive scale, that's, uh, those are young. What I'm arguing that you know, in the future, we will not have uh, millions and millions or hundreds of thousands of workers working for big giant corporations the same way as we did in 1950s. You know, we, we, that's, that means we are not going to have huge assembly line workers with the people doing repetitive work the same way as they did before. So we, not, we do not need a lot of employees. What we will need is uh, uh, entrepreneurs. Everybody today, if you look at uh, the opportunities created for new entrepreneurial work, uh, uh, it's, uh, if you think about uh, right now, what kind of entrepreneurs do we have? It's uh, simply speaking, we have uh, enlarged the idea of entrepreneurs too. Uh, number one, you know, we have uh, a lot of artists become self-employed you know, uh, entrepreneurs uh, through uh, new mechanisms like crowdsourcing and crowdfunding which means individuals can uh, invest as little as money as $5, $1 into a, a production of an album or production of a show, a, a movie, and or you can, uh, that, that enables artists to raise funds or anyone actually uh, to, to do that. You know. So you get on a, 
on the web look for uh, crowdfunding. It's a very interesting mechanism that allows you to do so. And crowdsourcing means you can, uh, if you're not great at something else or something, you can always outsource that to somebody else who can do it for you. So it enables everybody to become entrepreneurial. Uh, that, that's the, the potential is there. And uh, we also did a trend that has been like that. You are seeing a lot of uh, uh, individuals opening restaurants, uh, running uh, art shops, and operating online stores, all of those, the technology and globalization enables all of those possibilities. But more importantly is that uh, uh, entrepreneurs as a term uh, has been redefined, uh, entrepreneurship. That is uh, not only people who are engaged in maximizing profit and uh, in financially, uh, they are, there are now, we call them social entrepreneurs, uh, people who advocate for a social cause, advocate for social justice. Those, uh, uh, we call philanthropy, charitable organizations have got into the social enterprise domain as well. People who actively trying to um, you know, work towards, by using entrepreneur set of skills, work towards uh, uh, social justice uh, for immigrants, uh, to environmental protection. As I was uh, kind of joking, but it's, it's true. Jesus Christ, maybe one of the most successful social entrepreneurs, and uh, he has uh, uh, built a great social enterprise. You know, people may have a different opinion about that, but you know, definitely, I was a very. If you are looking for example, Yanis uh, of uh, Bangladesh, of course, uh, the Nobel Peace uh, uh, winner, who was a uh, Peace Prize winner, who uh, invented the idea of microcredit to loan money to uh, poor women in the village and uh, help them to uh, rebuild their life and to build towards prosperity. So those are the uh, social entrepreneurs, uh, a lot of them. I think uh, uh, educators, I think teachers could become social entrepreneurs. We, uh, we are trying to help out with our, our children, but uh, it requires entrepreneur set of skills. And the, the, sixth, the third category is people talk about, uh, uh, Richard Florida used a term called creative class, and uh, and those, when they are employed uh, in the company, uh, we need actually creative workers or entrepreneur workers. They are called intrapreneurs, I-N-T-R-A, intra, that means within. They are entrepreneurs within a corporation, within an organization, and they are still you know, uh, required to be creative. And uh, the final category of entrepreneurs, people now refer to as uh, policy entrepreneurs, and those are the folks we call, used to call bureaucrats. You know, they're still bureaucrats, but we, we wish that they could become more entrepreneurial in coming up with more innovative solutions to social issues, uh, to public uh, uh, governing issues. Uh, definitely now in, in the education arena, we need a lot more social entrepreneurial uh, uh, capable of uh, uh, bureaucrats in education instead of trying to a lot of bean counters. You know, that, that's, uh, the, the, that's the difference. So, well, you know, to, to think about what are entrepreneurs nowadays, uh, there's a new term I think uh, it's been coined right now. It's called, uh, they're called black-collar workers. Uh, in contrast to blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, they're called black-collar workers, a term very much inspired by Steve Jobs' uh, turtleneck. Uh, you know, the black turtleneck Steve Jobs used to wear, I think, is a tribute to uh, a great innovators uh, that we had there, entrepreneurs. It's, uh, and these entrepreneurs themselves basically in, uh, embodies uh, the entrepreneurial mindset or, or spirit, uh, which I would call, you know, number one is that uh, you, you take action. If there's uh, this dissatisfaction, entrepreneurs do not wait. They view those dissatisfactions on happiness or the situation as an opportunity, as an invitation for uh, action, invitation to, um, to come up with new solutions. If you uh, basically, if you're not happy with something, come with a solution. Alternative ideas. And the second thing, entrepreneurs have to be creative because uh, uh, today with 7 billion people on earth, with the globally connected, uh, uh, anybody you know, could come with some ideas, but your ideas need to be unique. They feel that you're on your strength, and so you have a chance to survive. And then third, you have to have confidence because uh, when you have a only when you have confidence, uh, you could be persistently trying to implement Entrepreneurs do not just talk about ideas, they actually put into action, and then they say it through. So you got, uh, the, the summary is simply that someone who is going to take action to solve a problem, and the problem solution normally is very creative and unique, and then you put into action and say it through. So that's the, the general process of, of, of entrepreneurship. 
Now, if today you think about globally, we are probably talking about, uh, uh, you know, the, the procedures. You identify the need on a global scale, what other people may need. If you take this entrepreneur spirit, you would view global competition differently. For example, right now, I think a lot of politicians like to be, uh, uh, be able to think and uh, to blame uh, domestic issues on foreigners, on foreign products or foreign people. You know, it's like I joke about this. Uh, Republicans uh, like uh, foreign products, so they, they advocate free trade, but they don't like uh, foreign people, so they try to be uh, tough to tough on immigration. The Democrats like uh, foreign people, so they allow immigration, but they don't like foreign goods. They, they want to uh, do trade protection. That's, uh, but either way, we, if we, what we view both foreign goods and foreign people, if we take an entrepreneur you know, uh, approach, we would view maybe uh, China, for example, by exporting, manufacturing low-level goods uh, for the U.S. and other developed countries, uh, it has created uh, an arising middle class, like the U.S. in the 40s, in the 50s, and somehow in that way. And those, if we, again, uh, are entrepreneurial, we would view them as customers. We would try to understand what kind of products they might need, and we can recreate and invent for them. You know, that's all if we view them as entrepreneurs, you know, uh, immigration, uh, immigrants, they can be a great workforce. They bring new ideas to us, you know. And so th th this is a, it's very different. We would treat these people, I mean, these issues in a different. But we need to have this global understanding, not about protection. We would accept globalization as a fact. We would accept machines as a fact. Remember, we invented machines uh, to actually replace human beings. Now we complain they replace human beings. That's not right. We invent them. They're just new problems we need to solve. And, but our education, unfortunately, hasn't uh, really pre been preparing people to do that. Our, uh, our education has been, like I wrote in my book, is for the, a talent reduction. Our education is like a sausage-making machine. We outline uh, the necessary uh, knowledge and the skills uh, through curriculum, you know, with the state curriculum, school curriculum, or national curriculum. And we, we outline those things, then we force teachers and students to, to teach and learn as much as possible. Then we use tests to force all educational institutions to make sure they impart the prescribed knowledge and content on our students. And through that, we in essence want to reduce student diversity. We don't care what uh, kind of interest they may have, what kind of strength they may have, what kind of passion they may have, or where they come from. Uh, we try to uh, homogenize them. So eventually, in the end, we will produce a, a, a nice set of people who met our expected qualifications. And the better a school does that, the better we think that school is. And the better a system does that, and the better we think that is. That's why we have, uh, now we are so uh, obsessed with the international assessments, like the PISA, uh, like uh, TIMS. That's why we are so obsessed with student test scores. Because we believe those test scores um, in, uh, is a great indicator of how well our students are prepared to become employees of uh, exist industry. And of course, you see, when you look at that, that there's several challenges. Is that uh, when you um, live in a closed economy, uh, like the village I used to live in in China, if it's closed economy, when the economy doesn't change very much, you could uh, reasonably predict what kind of uh, talent you might need, what kind of knowledge you might need to successfully live in the, in the society, you know, like in my village. And my father would say, the ability to raise water buffaloes or dry water buffaloes to plow the rice field uh, is definitely a necessity. Uh, then what it means, basically we have uh, uh, a common core for my village. The common core standards for my village is uh, your ability to handle water buffaloes. So that, that's uh, very, very simple. And uh, then all children would be taught uh, the ability to handle water buffaloes. Families uh, have kids who handle that better, uh, consider better schools, you know, about children have better abilities. So I tell you this, uh, I, I was not very good at uh, doing that, so I had to leave the village to go outside to do something else and uh, think like that. It's, uh, so now when you have an uh, education paradigm that's going to produce homogenized talent uh, and uh, we try to suppress you know, all the uh, exceptional talents, then the, the system basically is trying to replicate uh, um, and the past society. But today, that's not the case. As I outlined earlier, 
we needed a lot more individually globally competent creative entrepreneur talents uh, because of uh, outsourcing because of automation also because of the new opportunities created by globalization and technology we need the individually creative talent so that system does not work uh, very well and this is the conundrum that many societies face for example uh, the Asian countries as you are very aware of uh, have done uh, great in uh, international tests I would call them better sausage making machines than America so look at uh, China was number one on the pizza but China did not celebrate you know, in, uh, back, back then when it was considered the best uh, education system when China is considered as the best education and they did not celebrate why because they realized they, they have not been able to produce people like Steve Jobs they have not been able to produce people like Zuckerberg they wanted more creative innovative talents when they want to move away from the manufacturing economy that's a labor-intensive economy so they are they, they, they blame they think actually they mean they mean Chinese the Chinese think that they have actually the worst education system when it comes down to cultivating a diversity of creative entrepreneur talent so they are doing reform they are trying to look at the US to say what do you do here and what why does the systems you know uh, like uh, great sausage making machines uh, basically they are good at making sausage they, they are poor at uh, making bacon that's what happens they don't produce bacon so if you look at the system a system like that it's um, you can't when you produce people who are good at taking tests and tests number one rewards your ability to find answers not your ability to ask questions not your curiosity no matter what kind of tests we have I know we are trying to bet on this new common core and common assessment they are going to use computers they're going to do better assessment whatever assessment you produce it's going to be within the prescribed counting domain and that is still about testing your ability to comply with the prescription you know you, you, you comply with whatever they want you to learn so it's about obedience and uh, about uh, uh, about uh, uh, compliances with the system so that's where the issue is so when you have a system that have good test scores you basically have more people who obey uh, the prescribed content who have mastered prescribed content but in the process you lose exceptional talents and people like uh, I would call in you know, the Lady Gaga's Steve Jobs they are kicked out of the system because they may not comply or they may not be able to comply that's why I look, I look at China a country of uh, 1.3 billion people uh, they got to have more Steve Jobs born uh, more Lady Gaga's born when they were young uh, I mean genetically speaking or statistically speaking you should have more of the baby Steve Jobs but how come we don't have more and that's because the education system or the society or the culture maybe it's just and not all uh, work together to suppress to force compliance uh, of those things and so and the, the second thing is that uh, you know we always praise Asian countries for uh, a laser-like focus on education uh, indeed uh, Asian children spend lots of time on academic content Asian kids including many uh, Asian Americans many of you perhaps perhaps you remember the Tiger Mom, you know, from uh, Yale, you know, the, the the book, you know, the uh, Professor Amy Chua, uh, kind of outlined the same thing. The Asian immigrants, you know, they have great, outstanding academic achievement. Uh, how did they get there? I mean, right now, as you, many educators know, they're not born with a great academic test scores. It's uh, time. If you're focused on it, you spend all your time on something, you are going to get the result. Or if you don't, you're kicked out of the system. You are going to produce good test scores. So, but the second thing I was going to talk about is time. If you spend all your time studying academic subjects, you're not going to have time for socializing, hanging out with friends, which is important to learn about others, to understand other people's needs, and to maintain this curiosity about other people, to build friendship. Also, you, you're not going to be able to develop uh, uh, the other talents in art, music, and uh, other areas unless you spend time on it. And the, the, you know the final point is that when you go through a system we call meritocracy we go through ranking testing you're always telling your people you're not good enough because in that way the good is defined by being better than all others you know, like professor Emmy Chua you want your children to be number one all the time but if there's only one number one in one domain in one area in math or language arts and all other people will be bad 
will be worse than the number one. You know, remember if you have 100 people, you got a one, 99 people will be worse than number one. You destroy the confidence. This is like Albert Einstein once said, is, uh, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it would be a stupid fish. That's, that's a simple thing. So we lose confidence. That's why the international data like Kim's and like uh, the recent data I tracked down in my book uh, showing that uh, Asian countries, actually countries in general, global scale, countries have higher test scores, have lower confidence in entrepreneur skills or even in the subject to study. You know, that, that's, that's just uh, happening. That is somehow, somewhere, countries who manage to raise test scores have failed to raise confidence or actually have managed to destroy confidence. As I said, confidence is one of the major, major elements of the entrepreneur spirit. If you're not confident, you can be entrepreneurial and uh, you cannot be creative. So that, that's the, the part, I think, our existing paradigm of education that is basically uh, um, employee, employee, uh, employment-oriented education. We try to produce a lot of people with similar skills through a prescribed content. And then if you look at the U.S. Uh, as a good example, U.S. has been, uh, you know, many people say American education is in decline, it's getting worse. I have always said this, that's not true. American education is not in decline, it's not getting worse, it has always been bad, in, in according to some measures. At least international test scores measure that American education, uh, students were poor test takers in the 1960s, in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, you know, all the time. But America is still here. And how come America has uh, people like Steve Jobs, like Blackbird, like uh, Lady Gaga, everyone admire, uh, while still following the traditional paradigm? Here's what I, I call the, the, the traditional strength of American education. American education, although it aspires to become um, a sausage-making machine, um, but uh, luckily, due to historical accidents or some other reasons, the decentralized management system, the local control of school system, the respect for teacher professional autonomy, and the value of other talents uh, outside academic domains, all those things, while have generally dragged down Americans' collective performance on tests, they have allowed the space for other talents to grow, to exist. We have at least tolerated those outcasts. We have at least uh, allowed some of them to, to, to survive. You know, so that's what I call it. Uh, American uh, education is uh, a poorly uh, designed, is a bad sausage-making machine but it happens to grow some bacon out of it. So that's why you know, people explain what's the difference in the Chinese education, American education, one is a better sausage-making machine and one is worse. But now luckily in the 21st century, we have uh, more use for the bacon you know, than for the sausage uh, you know, at this time. And so now what I would like to propose to say this, we need to make this U-turn to return back to find our strength and then build a new paradigm. So what I would call from move from accident to design. We had accidentally produced um, sausage making machine that's kind of broken, and our edu education reformers and uh, from the common core standards towards, you know, of course, no child left behind, race to the top. All of those efforts are trying to fix this broken sausage making machine to make them more perfect so we can produce more homogenized uh, uh, talents to work in factories that don't exist. Uh, what we need to do is now is instead of trying to impose upon every child to be as good as each other or to even be better than their friends on a few subjects, we need to broaden that. So in this, new, in this book, I'm calling for um, a paradigm shift. The paradigm would move towards uh, a talent enhancement, or we call entrepreneur-oriented education. That is, we should enhance everybody's uh, talent, not trying to suppress their talent, so make them compliant with other uh, expected talents. Now, if you look at this, <laughs> this is nothing new, actually. In terms of uh, allowing children to grow on their own, we do that at a younger age, certain levels. You know, we have uh, our Montessori as great model, we're going to call the radio model. Or we have a ward off in all those we call them alternative schools, you know, the democracy schools. We have a lot of actually quite 
independent private uh, uh, services do allow certain children to do that, to pursue their talent. But then once we get a certain level, then we began to tighten it. Of course, now the federal government is talking about uh, more accountability on kindergarten education. That's getting worse and worse. It, it, that is. So traditionally, we have had some of those respect for individuals. But psychologically speaking, too, we know, you know that since 1970s, the cognitive uh, revolution talked about constructivism. Children constructed their own knowledge anyway. We know that's necessary. Children will learn better if you're allowed to explore uh, their own interests, their own passion. We also learned that uh, in this process, uh, our schools, no matter how much, how hard we try, a lot of our children get disengaged. If you look at uh, uh, at most of our schools, children are not happy and not engaged in what we want, to, want them to learn. And that engagement has to do when they say no when they say no relationship, no relevance to their life, to their future. Uh, that's not going to work. And also, by the way, most children. Uh, if they're young, it's hard to convince them this knowledge will guarantee a job in the future. Well, we, we, the children pursue things that they're interested in. And so disengagement. So what I would suggest, as in the book, I have a, a three simple elements that's going back to capitalize on what the U.S. education has had. And the one strength uh, is about um, the celebration of diversity. Truly value every talent. I think in the 21st century, uh, as I said, technology, globalization, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, any talent, once developed fully, can be useful. So the, 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 the general you know, uh, shorthand to remember that is, if Lady Gaga is useful, anyone can be useful. Just remember that phrase. Uh, now, what we want to think about is that you cannot definitely be the ochre, however. You have talent. That talent has to be developed. You have to become great. The first thing we want to make every child creative, confident, and great in their own way, in their specialized way, and help them to apply their greatness to do that. But greatness is not born. You know, we may be born with a great potential, but that potential can still be destroyed. What we will need is a lot of time to help every child develop that. I think. Uh, uh, Steve, you had Daniel Coyle last time talk about his book, The Talent Code. And I learned is that if you want to become great, you've got to spend a lot of time. If you want to become great, you've got to have a passion to drive it. If you want to be great, you have, have, you have to have good coaching, basically, who will make sure that you know, 10,000 hours you know, spent is not 10, one hour repeated 10,000 times. So that's, uh, that's another thing to think about. So my first thing is in this new book, talk about the a world-class education is to start with the curriculum. The curriculum is not prescribed. The curriculum emerges with a child. So what I would say, instead of trying to teach a prescribed curriculum by a body, no matter what kind of experts they have, uh, we would try to follow the child. I call it personalized and strength-based learning experience. We allow, we help, we support our children's own personalization of their learning experiences. Now, this is, doesn't mean let children do whatever they like. You change that. You can manage that by creating a rich, engaging environment in certain directions. And some schools may be specializing, let's say, in STEM, in science, technology, engineering, and math. Some may be in arts. You know, so some people would call it STEAM, maybe science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And uh, yesterday I learned a new term. Maybe it's uh, sports. Some people be in the physical talent of it. People call it STEAMs. As science, technology, engineering, arts, math, and sports. So you get all kinds of new phrases coming up, but uh, a school environment can enable that. Depends on what you create, what you craft, and the, the, the resources you provide can shape uh, and support children's interests as well. I mean, I, I've uh, always joked about that I could have become a Justin Bieber, a great singer, and, uh, but I didn't because I had no access to musical instrument until I went to college. And, and of course, by then it was too late. I could not have become a great singer. I might be. Uh, so that shows what we can do. So number one, personalized, strength-based curriculum or learning experiences. And we create the environment to support each child to develop their passion, to influence their passion, and to drive that. But that's not sufficient. Because to become great takes a lot of time. You want children to be engaged. You want to learn how to revise, how to get feedback from others, how to meet other people's needs. 
So this is second part I call pedagogy, which has to be product-oriented learning, not necessarily it's built on the idea of project-based learning because the project-based learning PBL has been uh, misused by a lot of people. So I'm, I'm calling a new term in this book is called product-oriented learning. That is our children have to be making things that's useful to others or meaningful to themselves all the time. And it's through making, it's through designing, it's through creation, they learn. Because when they are making things that to meet the needs of others, like our, our entrepreneurs, either it's a policy, it's a services product, it's a new piece of music, or it's an art video, it's a novel, anything like that. When they create, they will realize they do not have the knowledge. They do not have the skills. Then they will go back and learn. As many of you probably have personal experience like this, no matter how much you, are, you, you can pass the test, memorize the knowledge, true learning comes from when you are making things, when you are using them to solve a problem, to create a product. So the second is product-oriented learning, and that includes in a process, you know, it's a process of allowing peer review, allowing you to improve. I think we, in our schools, we don't let our children have enough time to work on certain products. So, you know, you, they write a little essay, unless they revise multiple times, it cannot be great. They cannot learn about the principles of disciplined, of sustained creation. They need to, to work hard at some of this. They need to learn about the resilience. They need to learn about rejection by other people. So this is product-oriented learning. I mean, in the book, I laid out a whole process of how you do it, what you can do. It's basically have children make things that matter, matter to them, matter to others, in the process, they learn about discipline, learn about feedback, learn about failure, learn about resilience, and but again, they take the responsibility, they are more likely to be engaged. And the final piece of this uh, uh, paradigm is, uh, is called uh, the school is a globalized campus. It's the context in which learning can take place. Uh, it's, it's through technology. So uh, now I think we have uh, by the way, this is just a little slight criticism, uh, which is really kind of, I'm working on another book is about how we have misused educational technology. For a long time, we've been thinking about technology uh, as a little tool to support teachers in a traditional classroom, and which is nothing wrong with that. Either. But overall, I mean, the modern information technology is now the more of the uh, productivity tools and the social tools really is supposed to enable children to make things more easily, to make things not only in traditional medium, like writing. By the way, I think uh, writing is one of the poorest media, media that you can use to express ideas. It takes too long to learn, takes too long to access ideas and thoughts. But anyway, we have now other media available. It's supposed to help children create. But now, so far, most schools use technology for children to consume, consume knowledge, and we try to make them better consumers of knowledge, but creators, entrepreneurs need uh, uh, people to know how to create. So the first thing, you know, as I argued, product-oriented learning is use technology to create. If any of you are thinking about technology, think about tools for students to create. The second thing technology has done is about remove isolation, is uh, to flatten the classroom walls, school walls, so we, our students can work uh, with people from other places, so teachers and schools can bring their resources from other places, so our students can extend their resources to other places as well. So I said, now we need to flat, uh, flatten our school environment. Children need to learn in a globalized context. They need to learn to understand what other countries might need, children in other places, understand their future customers, understand their future partners, what can they offer to them in the making of the product, and what can, you know, can they learn from other places, as well as uh, why do people need you, need us, need our students to not understand other people, and also you would bring resources from outside, you know, experts from other places. You may not be able to offer a fashion design course for some students who are interested in that, but well, bring somebody from New York or bring somebody from uh, Asia. If you try to teach, let's say, uh, Chinese art or history, they can do it online, they can do it uh, uh, through collaboration. So just to summarize, I think the new element really is about personalized, strength-based learning experiences, that's the curriculum, Product-oriented learning, that's the pedagogy. A globalized uh, learning context, that's the uh, school, that's the where this can happen. Now, 
to enable this, uh, allow me to a little bit, uh, you know, uh, to say what I've been trying to do. So I've been uh, trying to work on this uh, uh, in many different ways, not only writing a book, but actually creating tools to help that. Uh, so number one thing, I'm trying to build a network of schools globally uh, who are interested in really turning their schools into a context for cultivating globally competent, creative, and entrepreneurial talents. So we're going to build a network of people who are interested and who are able to do that, who are interested in putting this into action. I was in Australia, got a lot of people interested in. So I'm trying to work together uh, with a group of our organization to build a conference in Beijing next year, April, and I'll make some announcement later to uh, invite a network of people who are interested in this one. The next thing I'm building now is uh, I have, actually we're going to launch this quickly at the University of Oregon. It's called OBA, O-B-A. People ask me what OBA stands for. It really stands for nothing. It's basically a, a, a word that's universally pronounceable. And uh, it is also um, starts with O since I'm in Oregon, but it's also middle three letters of global. That's what we call the heart of global. And if you're interested in you can have access to this. You can give it a try um, at this web address. I'm typing this. So it's called obaworld.net. What it is, it's basically a, a universal cloud-based computing and learning platform uh, that allows every school, every teacher, every student who signed onto the system to create, share, and trade any ideas. So imagine this, that a school could be offering a course but you don't have enough students. You can enroll students online from other countries. You can, of course, use this to, to enroll your own students if you want to offer your own online learning system. This, in this way, this is uh, no different really from uh, the traditional, what they call Blackboard, you know, where you're using Blackboard, uh, um, when there's no uh, different from Moodle, I mean, but we make it much easier to create content, to share uh, this, uh, so it's at a course level, that allows the globalist campus. You know, the, imagine we got uh, schools from all over the world creating different kind of courses for each other. The second thing is, is it allows individual teachers. We call them teacher teacherpreneurs. If you have a great idea, if you are a great teacher in whatever domain, if you want to offer the course on your own or as part of a school to a global audience, you can do so on this platform. But I'm most excited is this. It enables students to become teachers, to become knowledge creators and knowledge entrepreneurs. Your students in your class could be creating products. You know, we're talking about product-oriented learning for students in other countries. My favorite example, if you are an English teacher, you can teach, um, you can teach uh, very well in, in the sense that you can uh, create English language services to others. Uh, doing grammar, you know, uh, teaching text, or you can fix students' grammar. You can be writing uh, textbooks, English textbooks, personalized English textbooks for students in Japan and China. And your students could be uh, joining, like uh, I was observing a, a Greek uh, group of schools in Australia called uh, the Reporters Academy. They send their students to uh, London, actually, uh, the Olympics, to report on behalf of the 15 countries in Oceania, which are uh, to uh, not... Uh, a big enough to spend in their own journeys to London. So, there were, but now we, if we, we can imagine a global uh, reporters academy. Our students are writing global issues. You can have your student bureau in Beijing, in Tokyo, in uh, Bangkok, in different places. So, this platform uh, is uh, available. I saw that Steve was trying to reach it. It's not reachable because we're switching servers today. We are we've piloted with uh, five thousand students, uh, twenty some schools in five countries, and last uh, year. And uh, we are going to launch this in about two weeks. We just got our legal agreement. And this system is going to be basically our idea is to do schools as members. We want to reach about thousands of schools and millions of students. So it is a learning management system. It is also a portfolio management system. If students create any product, they can extract it to send to their future employees or colleges or to their parents and do whatever they like. And, uh, it is also a global collaboration system that would allow teachers to co-develop courses and share. And it also allows, of course, the University of Oregon, I will be doing uh, quite a lot of uh, workshops on this and for online and global teaching. It also enables people to uh, build um, 
physical, you know, um, relationships with others as partners. So it's called OBAWorld.net. It's going to come out very soon. And uh, many of you won't ask, how much does it cost? I, I try to make this cost so, uh, so low because we don't have stakeholders. So University of Oregon, we are charging the initial membership fee of uh, $1 per student per year. So if you have 500 students, $500, you have access to a global context that enables you to build creative, globally competent, and entrepreneurial students. So I'm going to end there. It's 45 minutes on the dot. And thank you very much. I'll be happy to take questions for the next 15 minutes. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but the first 10 or 15 minutes of the session, uh, there was no chat because people were just listening. Um, so if you have a question for Yang, please feel free to raise your hand. It's the third icon over in the participant window, and I can give you the microphone. There's some applauding going on. It's hard to find the applause button here. I apologize for that. But hover over the smiley face, go down to applause. Those of you who have just raised your hands, you might be applauding, but leave it up. Leave your hand up if you would like to ask a question. And uh, we'll start. Uh, We'll start taking those questions now. And you can put a question in the chat as well. So Valerie, were you interested in asking a question? If you are, I've given you audio permissions. And you can click on the talk button at the top left. OK, thank you. I um, have a specific question about China. I, um, I work in a Montessori school, which is 6 through 15. So yeah, last year, I was working with 9 to 12-year-olds. And we did an exchange with a friend of mine in, in Beijing. She's an American, but she was working in some Chinese schools. And we were able to exchange some uh, videos through Skype and also just by sending packages by mail with art and some recorded video and whatnot. I'm wondering more about, I know she has problems with access in China. And I'm just wondering if you can say more about that, because I do think that there's such a great opportunity for exchange with China. And I really want to move forward with more of that. Well, thank you, Valerie. Yes, uh, the, um, the, as you can see, the Asian education system is really looking for alternatives, like uh, uh, Montessori schools have been mushrooming in China, uh, international schools and mushrooming in China. Uh, however, we need to be, this is actually uh, creates a lot of uh, um, space, a uh, room for, for scandals, for um, not so honest practices. There are many groups uh, trying to call themselves Montessori. As far as I know, Montessori does not have a, you know, like a trademark or anything. So anyone can call them like Montessori education. So a lot of, uh, you know, it's been used also as a, uh, as advertisement, uh, so many uh, kindergartens claim to be Montessori-like or Montessori schools to attract a lot of students. But uh, the basic is that in China is a fertile market for any kind of alternative education. Even homeschooling has uh, has uh, begun. Parents are uh, looking for other sources of education. And I was reading a piece of news uh, yesterday from China. It's talking about uh, Chinese parents are. Basically, we need to sell their cooking pots to send their kids to alternative schools overseas. So that's why, you know, on the one hand, you know, many policymakers, researchers in the U.S. are claiming China has the best education system. If so, the Chinese parents must be dumb to abandon that, that they are moving to a different type. So I would encourage you, if uh, you want to work, I mean, in any alternatives, China is dying for that and uh, is needing that. Of course, there's issues with the government control. The government still does not like uh, Montessori schools or international schools to serve a lot too many local people, but that may change. It's again, uh, currently the unfortunate thing is that uh, as in, in the U.S., the wealthy and the rich are always able to ac access those great, uh, 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 much better educational uh, uh, sources, and they prescribe, standardized uh, always for the poor. You know, and, and that's why also I'm critical of the U.S. education reform. Now, if we and look at uh, President Obama's two daughters are not subject to the common core standards or common assessment, for example. So that, that's the kind of things uh, we need to think about how as uh, educators and parents as well create equal access to much more diverse set of uh, innovative educational sources. Valerie, if you want to go to China, let me know if you want to, uh, uh, I'll be happy to uh, put you in touch with some other groups of people who are trying to recreate schools in China. So um, there are several comments in the chat that they can't reach the OBA site. When does the site actually go live again? 
uh, the site, uh, I need to ask my, my staff, the site should be, uh, we have two sites, one is called Oba Word, one is Oba Verse. Oba Verse, anyone can play with it. And Oba Word is, uh, is more tightly controlled because it's, uh, it's for students and we want to make security. Oba Verse, anyone can sign on to work on it. I don't know if it's up, actually, you can try this one. They are moving servers. It should be up by next week, definitely by Monday. And I do encourage you to, or you can go to this site um, to, I think, uh, to get a general idea of what we are. It's called Global Education, uoregon.edu. That's our site. And Jen, I'm trying to blog over there as well. Uh, I will make sure you, you have access to it and let me know. And it may, may or may not work, but let me. The other thing is that uh, I will be blogging about when it's up. If you are up, you can always come to my site to, to say it. And uh, that's the Oberverse. That's why you can play with it. OK, so there was um, a question from our librarian friend, David Lurcher, who says, most content management systems are behaviors mm -hmm. than nature. Is Oba more constructivist? Well, thank you. Uh, OBA is completely constructive since I, as I kind of came up with that. I supervise development. If you go in there, it's uh, like um, all the tools are there for people to make things, to create and uh, share things. So that's why we changed this Moodle idea from a teaching. So you're constructing pages. It's very much like a Facebook, but I allow you to construct more coherent uh, content to share with others. And so there's a social network, a social element inside as well. Speaking of that, I actually was uh, working on an article about online teaching. Why online teaching hasn't become online education? Because online teaching is too much behaviorist driven and targeted model transmission. There's too little social and off-task uh, uh, interactions. So we want to create that in a different way. So overall, the idea is individual students actually have their own page, have their own control. They can share, they can target, they can publish. It's about creating. That's where it came from. Uh, a lot, many, about over a decade ago, I created um, some kind of an online learning system about 1996. It's called eWeb. It's really enabled people to create uh, uh, content. Uh, it was called HomePage Maker. I was uh, many, many years ago when I was much younger. I used to the computer programming myself. And uh, if I had, uh, if I had been a good entrepreneur, I would probably have uh, been much richer. I would be running like uh, the Blackboard could have purchased me. Uh, but anyway, that was a different story now. So um, there's a question, Jan. You make so much sense. Why do those who define education in America not get it? Well, I think you know the, the, uh, there, there are really several answers, and I, I hope there's a rhetorical question. You probably know that I do it about why they don't get it. Is that uh, I mean, number one, because people are fascinated by numbers, were seduced by knowledge. And uh, you know, the, this is called evolutionary hangover. Actually, I wrote in the book. Because if you look, test scores prescribe the content uh, and uh, a clean pathway towards success, a uh, cleaner defined risk course for you to complete the risk. It's very seductive and appealing to, to parents and politicians. And uh, we want that accountability of those things. But actually, by the way, even look today, we call college readiness. Uh, even if you go to college, you don't have a job. The U.S. now has uh, over, you know, look at our data. We have more college uh, degree holders don't have jobs than those who don't. I mean, this is the data come. We have uh, an average uh, trillion dollar of college and debt. That's very sad. It's, uh, we push everybody to get a college degree without helping them to identify their strengths, what they're good at. That's not going to work in the U.S. Ostensibly, one of the most entrepreneurial countries, only less than 5% of our students, actually, a grad college grads ever thought about, uh, you know, uh, uh, create a job. They're all looking for a job. If they don't find one, they move back to their parents' basement. You know, that, that's the, the, the big challenge of, of this thing. So I don't think uh, the, uh, looks like my website is done as well. That's very strange. And uh, the, so the, I think they, they don't get it because, again, a lot of them themselves may not be you know, living in the same situation. So what I would say is that uh, we need to change this whole thing. I hope it can change fast. It's, uh, but they, we, we cannot overlook the seductive power of the traditional paradigm because it's clean, it's clear. And also, America is always in this uh, competitive mode. We want to beat others. If you want to beat others, 
there's probably only one, you know, you have to set up rules and criteria to say how it's going to uh, beat others. That's, that's the issue. Is that, so we need to have one or two uh, sim simple criteria to, to do that. And also, this is very dangerous, by the way. I'm, I'm talking about this right now. The media plays a major role to say, you know, media cannot talk about individual success. They, they, only, uh, they want to look at how schools are not doing a good job using test scores. PISA, in the test I mentioned, uh, it's now, it has been uh, used and it has been growing so fast. Now we have 70 countries participating in this round, and we have now individual schools and school districts participating. This is very dangerous. Now all our schools are going to be put uh, in, a, in terms of against schools in other places. Thomas Friedman actually wrote about this, I think in the New York Times op-ed piece, I wrote something in response on Diane Ravage's blog. It's about now future parents can march into the superintendent's office to say, why my children are not doing as well as those kids in Singapore. This is getting more and more dangerous because uh, uh, they, they don't understand the other side effects at what cost they've raised those test scores. As educators, we have to think about taking action you know, on this, uh, this level. Okay, if I haven't uh, caught a question, please let me know. I have two more to go, and we probably got about that much time. Uh, Sarah wants to know if you could expand on your plan for a network of schools and how schools can participate. Uh, well, I'm not, uh, it's going to be in, by invitation only. I'm basically looking for schools. I do believe. There are schools, superintendents, boards, and especially independent schools who wants to change. And if you do, let me know because I want schools who are committed to making to making those big changes. We're willing to do this, and this is not going to uh, cost schools necessarily more. I just want to be able to work with schools that we want to have change. And let's take a look at resources. How do we realign this? How can we make it happen? By the way, uh, what I what I propose in the book is nothing really new. It's been practiced in various forms and different places. It has just been on the fringe, been, uh, has been reserved as a privilege to some of, you know, a small percentage of people. So whatever I described is happening, has happened in different places. So if schools are interested in this one, the best way is to email me and I'll keep that in mind and uh, we'll, we'll decide. It's most important is are you uh, committed to making those big changes. You know, there are I mean, a few, but I, I don't think I will be able to have massively change the whole system, but we need the good, shining examples. Today, education... Diana, I've given you the microphone. Innovative, Turn your courageous click on the talk button at the top left. Hi, Young. Um, I just posted my question there. Um, I haven't read your book, but um, have been following this chat. Trying to understand the concept of entrepreneurship, whether you use it uh, as an umbrella term for like the student's autonomy and self-directed learning with the ultimate goal for them to you know, solve problems that then bring them into deeper learning. Um, can you clarify that for me? I, thank you. It, it actually uh, it encompasses uh, all of what you said. It's the idea is I want in the, every individual is coming out to become uh, independent, like the problem solvers, rather than trying to seek a, a, a position that's been created for them. The same thing applies to entrepreneurial students in the classroom, like I said, it's more student autonomy. You recreate your own learning environment. It also is the entrepreneurial spirit that you would retain after you graduate and when you enter the society, you are become more creative and you know, like now, for example, I'm trying to hire a lot of people. And there's a lot of people who don't have a job, but I can't find the talent. You know, I have someone say, okay, I need someone to work on the OBA uh, uh, marketing to let schools know. I just hired a fresh graduate. I said, I just, so what I gave her, I said, okay, um, here's OBA, here are other schools, figure out what to do. And then we will all be here to become your resources and support. But we cannot tell you exactly what to do. So that's where, like students, you, you can only do that when you are, uh, you know, and learning all along the way to say, it's your job to do something. It's your job to reorganize the resources. It's your job to define something, not prescribe. If you think about our school in uh, following the uh, standardized curriculum, we tell students what to do. 
this is a, a problem you solve this way. We teach them how to do it. And uh, instead, we need now students to draw on the resources. If you look at now with uh, Google, with the Khan Academy, with all these teacher resources, students should be able to start with a problem solved on their own and then bring the resources. And that's a habit, that's a mindset. So uh, the book describes a lot more than this. So that's the simple entrepreneur spirit. You know, uh, do not back down from a problem. Come up with a solution. Young, we've hit the top of the hour. Put it's a courtesy to you. We're going to close now. But thank you so much. I'm clapping for you again. Uh, I'm about halfway through the book and really, really love this book. Hopefully, you'll be encouraged to go out and buy it. Thank you. Um, coming up, we do have uh, two sessions at the top of the hour. Please check the schedule. Uh, one on social and cognitive presence, and the other on student-directed learning. And then uh, a, a couple more sessions before our 5 p.m. Eastern keynote panel with librarians being led by our own David Lurcher in the chat here. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Yong. Have a great day. Bye now. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Bye.